so I think step one on the sort of consciousness uh, battle is being able to uh, find equilibrium in our lives, and it's different for each person, which means taking time out to find peace inside. So whether that's, you know, taking your walk every day in the forest or becoming a meditator or a yogi or a surfer or doing what you need to do to find equilibrium inside and then coming to a select uh, problem that you think you can make a positive impact on and being incisive, you know, choosing that thing and saying, I'm going to, I'm going to make progress on this in an educated way. Choosing our battles is really important um, right now because of the overwhelming nature of the way the information is coming at us from a balanced perspective, from an educated perspective, and from an optimistic perspective. Jamal Yogis is a writer and a teacher and a searcher. He's a lover, a spiritualist, a movie maker, fear scientist, a student of life, and a spectacular surfer. His most recent book, All Our Waves Are Water, is a memoir that the BBC called The Best Beach Read of 2017. Jamal is also the author of Saltwater Buddha, a coming-of-age memoir about running away to Hawaii at age 16 and eventually winding up at Columbia Journalism School. Jamal's second book, The Fear Project, is a journalistic and scientific book featured in Oprah, Outside, and Forbes about how we can live more courageously and fully through mindfulness, sports, and relationships. Talking with Jamal feels like sitting on the beach. I could almost hear the waves in the background. It was truly an honor to sit down with him for this discussion about purpose, science, and enlightenment. This is a space for authentic conversations around indigenous wisdom, spiritual growth, and social consciousness as we forge a path towards a more peaceful and harmonious world. I'm Jared Angaza, and this is Inipi Radio. Jamal, thanks so much for being on the show today. I'm definitely excited to talk to you. There's all kinds of areas of overlap in our journeys and, and places you've been and things you talk about that resonate very much with me and I'm sure with the, the audience of an EP radio as well. To start out, tell us a little bit about where you're at and what's going on right now. I am actually in my kid's room. <laughs> in a, they're yes. at school right now. And <laughs> it was the one room in the house where um, I could find a little uh, quiet. And um, so, yeah, just staring out at a east window toward um toward the hills of san francisco and to my west is uh, the ocean and um yep we're out here at in the outer sunset of san francisco and um so yep just me and dr seuss here <laughs> uh, that's an excellent companion for this interview <laughs> yeah indeed if i if i start uh speaking in and making up names and ridiculous mm -hmm. rhymes know the reason <laughs> perfect perfect uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here at my wife, as as usually happens when I'm doing an interview, 
just escorted the children outside for, for some playtime to make sure that we have a, a little less screaming in the background. <laughs> the well, I'm very familiar with the <laughs> Indeed. All right, man. Well, so I, I, I'm interested to hear you have a very unique uh, you know, journey, the, the things that you've been through, the, the, being a journalist and being a, uh, an author of a few books that we will talk about as well, uh, being a world traveler, and obviously also very dedicated to your practices and so on. I realize that so much of what you do seems to revolve around kind of the idea of freedom and, and experiencing freedom. And, it, uh, and to me, I can read a lot into that. And I, I'd like you to speak to that a little bit. What does freedom mean to you? Yeah, I mean, a lot of uh, what I've done, I've realized, is um, try on these different sort of archetypes of freedom. Uh, you know, when I got out of, actually, when I was really, when I was in high school, I think I was really attracted to the idea of living free, you know, um, living uh, a life that wasn't your typical, you know, nine to five, uh, white picket fence. And which seemed a trap to me, I think watching my, my dad was in the military, my mom was a teacher and they divorced and, uh, for whatever, you know, seeing, I think the pain that they had in their marriage and then, and then a rocky relationship with work, it was like, I don't want that. You know, I know I don't want want something else. And, um, and so the first ra- archetype was kind of like the bohemian uh, beatnik, um, so to speak, in high school where, you know, my friends and I were partying. Um, and it was like, well, let's try out freedom in this just sort of no holds barred, you know, excess, life of excess, you know, like let's drink the good beer and smoke the good weed, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, you know jump off the big stairs on our skateboards and, you know, just try to live experience, um, to the hill. And, um, and I, I don't think it was just the fact that I was getting into trouble (laughs) that that was not ultimately the freedom I was looking for. You know, it was like, there was something missing there, even though, you know, we had lots of fun nights out on the town or whatever, but there was always like, well, you know, and it wasn't just the fact that, you know, you have, you you get a hangover. It was like, there's something else. I feel like there's something bigger that we're trying, we're seeking here. Um, and my next step was, you know, as I talk about in my first book, um, was running away. Uh, and I had this, um, at the time my dad had been a surfer when he was younger and had to leave it. And I think there was, I had this image of the surfer as another archetype of, of freedom. And, uh, so I ran away to Hawaii and when I was 16 and I, you know, it was all about learning to surf. I thought, um, you know, in retrospect, it was about a lot of other things, but, uh, you know, one trying to reconnect with my dad who I was a little estranged from, but also like, nothing seemed more free to me than being able to, you know, ride a wave, um, live in the tropics, uh, not a lot of possessions, but, you know, a rich life. Um, and, you know, getting there, 
there were a lot of aspects and I continue to love to surf. Um, but I think each sort of hat that I've tried on each archetype, there were always things that were really satisfying and then also unsatisfying. And the next one was, you know, I went to go live in a Buddhist monastery, um, and that, I think, was the first time I got a glimpse of something that was closer to real freedom, where uh, even though I found a lot of connect, freedom and connection to nature that surfing offers or um, freedom in the friendships that, you know, sort of the bohemian life offered, in meditation at the monastery, and I lived in this Zen monastery um, that was pretty orthodox, where we were doing pretty rigid, serious meditation, which was incredibly difficult for um, for me at the time when I couldn't even barely sit cross-legged for half an hour <laughs> without <laughs> my knees feeling like they were going to explode. Um, you know, I. But there were moments as I got into it where I saw uh, contentment or a freedom of the mind, you know, a sort of expansiveness of the mind where it wasn't dependent on, you know, how many waves I got or how many friends I had or, you know, what was the best party I went to. It was like, no, there's something, you know, when my mind is at peace or is sort of more expansive, everywhere I go in that place, I am free you know, and, um, and I got glimpses of that in the monastery, um, and ultimately decided I didn't want to be a monk. I lived there for a year and almost ordained in my, um, I was only about 19 and my abbot of the monastery was encouraging me to try college because he'd seen enough, you know, teenagers be overzealous and ordained and then not <laughs> yeah. leave as soon as they came. Said, you know, try college, try out the world. And, and, and so I did, um, and I didn't end up going back to being a monk, but I think um, what uh, I've continued to do, you know, over the years in my travels and continuing to surf, continuing to meditate, and I guess the next one was writer, you know, trying on the, the lifestyle of the writer. I was always intrigued by, you know, people like, uh, you know, Hemingway and Kerouac and, you know, the adventure writers who yeah. seemed like they had built a life around, um, uh, living, living full and writing and telling the story. And that was like the next one. And, and I think, um, all of them have their own aspects of freedom and they're all ways, they're all really tools that we pick up in order to, um, look through that lens and, and see, you know, the diamond of freedom from a different angle or, or, or look through the diamond, you know, to, to make a different, uh, get a different angle on, you know, reality. But, um, but I continue to, um, you know, I think the reason that, that Zen sort of seems to almost like wrap around and expand around all those versions of freedom is that it's the one philosophy in on my path where I've, they have that perspective that it's like, it's not about the form, you know, being the meditator or being the surfer or being the writer. It's about what that tool can lead you to, which is, um, you know, something 
that is is true freedom, true unshakable freedom. And you know, um, I'm still still learning about that and see myself as just a student, um, a student of freedom, kind of. I, I, yeah, absolutely. I understand uh, that very much. And I, I think that a lot of even what you described there at the end, in terms of it being a tool, I mean, that's how I feel about, you know, even religion of, of any kind, of any kind of practice like that. It is a tool. It's a kind of a, you know, it's a vehicle to get you across the river. The river is a longer discussion, but I think you know what I mean there. But right. And then some of it, too. I mean, even with religion, I, I think, you know, and, and say that religion gets you across the river it's not always necessary to pick up the canoe and take it with you once you cross the river either. Sometimes these things are momentary and maybe it's moments, maybe it's years, maybe it's, you know, half a lifetime or whatever, but we have these different practices and experiences and, and things that provide a window into something that we need to see or experience. And I think for me, it's been many different things. It used to be rock climbing and extreme rock climbing and all kinds of crazy, uh, you know, hiking and adventures and things like that. And to some degree it still is, but I also get some of the same sort of, um, I don't know, vision and, and, and clarity, I guess, out of other practices like yoga and meditation and so on. Uh, but it's mm-hmm. interesting how these things kind of come in and out of our lives when, when we need it, I guess. But that the, with Buddhism, uh, it's something that I have, uh, I've studied a lot as well. Uh, and a lot of other practices and ways um, not as I've studied religion for sure, but I think I've been more intrigued by the ways of different people, um, from the, you know, the way of Jesus to the way of Buddha, to the, the, the way of the samurai, you know, Bushido and, and mm-hmm. understanding, uh, their, their lifestyle and the way that they do things. And I love that. Uh, I, I mean, I, I see a big differentiation between a religion and a way, you know, it's the way we do it. Uh, it's the way we see things. It's the perspective that we hold. What are some of the perspectives of Buddhism that have most resonated with you? Well, yeah, I mean, I just echo that a little bit first that, uh, I think religion is a tool and, um, and I think there is a way that, you know, a lot of, a lot, for a lot of people, religion is sort of like a bad word, like, you you know, because the history of religion Mm -hmm see so much upheaval and war i mean just like history of politics or history of science for that matter i mean people have used these systems as tools for abuse and and power but um you know i was a religion major and um you can come at religion from a place where uh you take it everything literally and in which case you know humanity is sort of in a bad place <laughs> because there's so many, say that, yeah. there's so many only one truths you know out there and everybody <laughs> else liar and everybody else is uh you know going to to going to be damned and um and that's clearly uh but that's clearly not the what any of these prophets of a universal truth were getting at where you know if there is one um, source of energy or one God, uh, you know, clearly, uh, we all have to be part of it and all have to be part of that creation. And so when you kind of take a more, uh, interpretive look at it, yeah, it is about 
tools for freedom and tools for unity and tools for understanding, just like science is a tool, frankly. I mean, science is a way of understanding reality, and so is religion a way of understanding ourselves. And I really like that you're, you know, speaking about that on your show, because I think it's the crucial insight for our world right now, where so many people, you know, in the developing world are moving on to, uh, you know, leaving their religion and taking on maybe a more secular framework, which is fine. But then looking at the religious, and clearly the world is not leaving religion behind as um, something that is from the dark ages. And, um, but, you know, as we embrace science, I think we, we need the alts of these tools that show us who we are internally. And it doesn't necessarily have to be um, the exact structure of, of the way religion has gone. But I do think we need to understand that this is the way that our ancestors have understood ourselves for so long. So we at least need to find a way to interpret these tools and to see their value. And, um, and I think, uh, yeah, understanding them as tools is the first step to doing that. Um, but you know, in terms of Buddhism, gosh, it's such a, a beautiful and vast tradition. Um, and I think what I love about it is, is that, it is taught as a series of tools. You know, they talk about expedient means where really you, um, and that the Dharma, the teachings are given to each person uniquely. So it's like where one person might need to be doing still meditation. The other might, you know, need to be doing some sort of service work or intellectual activity. And the, the idea that each one of us is different and has, a, and that there are, you know, as they say, 84,000 uh, doors to, to awakening, um, which really means infinite doors. Um, as always, I think I couldn't turn away from a, a tradition like that that had, because I was like, well, clearly, yeah, that is. We each have our, you know, enlightenment may be one, but we each have our own unique uh, sort of uh, fractured view. And so we each need our own way of, of uh, being taught and so I've always liked that approach to Buddhism. Um, and then, you know, I also loved a tradition that was 100% based in compassion for all beings. It wasn't like, well, you know, only the be- beings who believe what we believe <laughs> or yeah. only the beings who have, you know, are from this country or only, you know, humans and not animals or anything. It was just like, no, every being who feels mm-hmm. we are out to help, you know, we're out to improve their situation from the worst of them, quote unquote, to, you know, the highest gods. And, um, and I thought, you know, how cool is that, that, um, and I know Buddhism isn't the only tradition to have that perspective, but it's like, they come back to that again and again, like all sentient beings. And it's such an impossible challenge, um, that it, it's almost like, it's an awakening, uh, just to think about the type of compassion that, you know, a bodhisattva who really looks at every being as their own child would have. And, um, and, uh, so, you know, those are a couple of things that, that have, have blown me away about the tradition. Uh, and those are things certainly that I find 
to be important about that practice as well. And, and I've been drawn to a lot of the same or similar kinds of practices that have that all-inclusiveness. And I've been very involved with American Indian rights and, and, and from an activist standpoint, but also obviously prior to that and, and all throughout that journey, I've been very dedicated to understanding uh, the principles and the ways of uh, American Indians and specifically the Lakota is ones I've studied the most and tend to be a very spiritual kind of um, element of the tribes. And they, you know, they're in, in American Indian culture in general, they're animists, you know, so they see spirit in everything. Everything is kind of, everything kind of is, is involved uh, or connected, I should say, to the collective consciousness. Uh, everything is interconnected. Uh, and that, to me, I mean, even from a philosophical standpoint, you know, you look at that, that I mean, it would be, I guess, called panpsychism in, in that regard. And it's looking at, you know, everything having this connection to consciousness. And I think when you look at the world from that perspective, no matter your practice, <laughs> uh, when you look at the world, understanding that we are all interconnected, we are all you know, star stuff, as Carl Sagan would say. We are, we're all created from the same elements by the same kind of creator. That's another discussion. <laughs> but that mm. we, we are all interconnected. And, and, and it's, I, 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 honestly, I, I feel that if we, if everyone believed that, that we were all interconnected, <laughs> uh, I mean, it would obviously change everything. And I think that a lot of the reason that we have a lot of the conflict and, and, um, violence and things that we have in the world is because we have failed to uh, understand and embrace and, and revere our, our innate interconnectedness. And I, I think that once, let me, let me segue into this because I want to, there's a question I wanted to ask you. Mm-hmm. The, uh, I've, I've always said that if you are, if you are a scientist and you're studying uh, whatever area of science and I feel like if you're willing to go far enough into it, to, to go as, if, if you just say, I'm going to go as far as I can the, the, study the depths of this particular subject, that eventually in science, you're going to work your way into a discussion that leads you to consciousness and spirituality. I could say the same thing about biology. You can't go that far into the human body without coming out the other end and either having a box full of anomalies, quote unquote, or something we call supernatural or, or, or spiritual or something like that. So I, I think that I, I, my journey in that regard expanded exponentially once I started going down the route of studying quantum physics. And you start to understand the interconnectedness of things on a much higher level than, than even just the typical spiritual studies. I mean, I love, I think this show ends up sitting in that space of the intersection between science and spirituality. And even those words, I could break down a little bit more for, for the sake of conversation. I'll use those two. It's where they meet. And that's an interesting place for me and a place I spend a lot of time. Talk to me a little bit about your experience in that space where, where those two worlds collide. Yeah, it's been, it's been an adventure. I mean, <laughs> I, as somebody who was really always attracted to science um, and then always really intrigued by, you know, I guess the life of, of mythology um, and religion and spirituality um, and went back and forth on a pendulum a lot of the time. 
like wanting one of them to win or something. Like it was like a, <laughs> yeah. you know, there was be like eventually I would like shun one and embrace the other or something. And 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 then periods of time where I was trying to combine them and you know I, I've I've done the dance like you, um, and ultimately I mean I think so much of it is about the words we use um, because you know when you really look into um, particularly like the Eastern traditions with the yoga and meditation, you really are take not taking anything on faith. You're going as an observer into your own mind. So you're saying like, I am going to sit here in the stillness and observe the way that things function, the way that thought functions, the way that suffering manifests and try to cut, you know, see where does suffering actually stem from? Where is its root? Is it sensation? Is it, uh, you know, is it, is suffering come from the outside where it's like you age and you sicken and therefore you suffer? Or is there something else underneath that, like the way that we react to sensation? And that is a very scientific approach. And some of the ways that, you know, Thomas Merton or, um, you know, Hafiz came about uh, studying the Judeo-Christian traditions also had um, both a poetic and a faithful approach, but often a very uh, discriminating scientific approach to contemplative life. And then, you know, if you are a scientist, you're you're basically saying that I'm going to question everything. I'm never going to take every anything um, on uh, faith. I'm going to keep poking and prodding at this hypothesis, and then even when I find an answer, poke and prod at that until you get down to, say, yeah, particle physics, quantum level, where things just start to break down and the very idea of subject and object start to break down. Well, that's exactly where the contemplatives went to, where they were saying, well, look, there's a point in your mind where there is no separation between matter and thought. There is no separation between self and other because the observer has uh, started to break down in the absence of a thinking mind that constructs the observer. And so, you know, and then you, you start to look at like what the quantum physicists are doing with like, well, you, you know, matter doesn't necessarily collapse into a hard entity until the observer is there. And I know there's lots of ways to interpret what the physicists are have come up with i mean for those who maybe haven't studied quantum theory you know we're talking about uh the crucial um uh experiment where you know a, a wave um begins to act like a particle and a particle on a wave depending on whether it's being observed and measured um and that so there is some fundamental connection between the way that reality is constructed and the way that it is observed um, and the way that the observer maybe, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, you, you start losing words for it because there isn't necessarily <laughs> yeah. a way to, de to describe it. And, and so I see them really now as, um, this is a long rambling way of saying, I see them now as the same thing. I see the contemplative life and the scientific life as ways of seeing 
And they both, I think, become dogma when they realize, when they think that the structure of their way of searching is the answer. When scientists say, well, religion or anything else besides science is bogus because it's not science. It's like, uh, <laughs> you just became a religious zealot. And the religious mm -hmm. folks can do the same when they say, well, look, my text says this, it conflicts with your scientific approach, and therefore I can't entertain it because it's, uh, you know, it's sin or whatever. It's like, then, well, then you are a zealot as well and not necessarily, I, I think, interested in truth with a capital T. And so I think someplace um, in shows like this and in the conversation, and I think it's happening, um, you know, with people like Pope Francis and the Dalai Lama both saying, we really need to look at what where science and religion collide, um, you know, this is going to be an ongoing conversation for many years. And I think it's uh, a rich one to have, um, you know, I'll just tack on one more thing to this rambling answer that <laughs> I, I, uh, I, in my books, you know, I took sort of my first book takes a, a Zen approach to sort of the structure of the book and the structure of the thinking. And then in my second book, The Fear Project, I really went, I wanted to look through a scientific lens. I had that craving to go interview all the neuroscientists and, you know, um, psychologists and see what we know about the brain. And the, the reason I, in my third book, I decided to come back to a spiritual, uh, entertaining spiritual ideas and practices is that the deeper you go into science, as you were saying, what you really find out is how much, how little we know for sure. Yeah. And ultimately that we don't know anything for sure. <laughs> and which is why it's such a beautiful thing, uh, you know, that science is pointing us to that, like we can, you can find out a lot about the practical world, but about the big questions of consciousness, it only opens up more questions. I mean, more questions that I think are, are really awe inspiring. Absolutely. I mean, you think about the how many papers, studies, and, and whatnot that were published. Even uh, you know, Einstein published scores of kind of uh, quote unquote results that were kind of final at the time, and then they weren't, <laughs> and, right. and then kind of came back. You know, and we had the theory of special relativity, and then theory of general relativity, and you know, then there's string theory and super string theory and now loop theory. And so it just keeps going because we keep learning more. And a lot of that's based in exactly what you just said, where we have, you know, once, once you dive in, you learn what all, there's a whole other world out there that we didn't know that we didn't know. Right. <laughs> and it just kind of expands from there. So you've written uh, a book about fear <laughs> called the fear project in, in 2013. And this is, obviously something I talk a lot about. Uh, and it, this is one of those things where, you know, it's one of those root issues, fear. Uh, we talk about freedom and, and, and fear and some of these other big, big ticket items that get a lot of conversation around them. And I've, when I, you know, as an activist and philanthropist my whole life, uh, I, and being someone that, that's also in the professional world, you know, a strategist and brand developer and so on, I'm constantly studying human behavior and studying, uh, you know, what motivates us, what stops us from doing things, what are we, what are our, well, and ultimately what are our greatest fears and so on. So I see for me, I mean, it's difficult to look at 
any it'd be difficult to, to find any world malady that doesn't that isn't connected to fear somewhere along the line and whether it be you know physical uh, ailments and so on or, or uh, social issues and in, in our economic system and so on obviously I could tie just about every world malady back to our economic system too but that's a different story uh, different <laughs> discussion uh, but but I think that fear is kind of that root cause and if we look at at, at fear over on on one side and we look at for me, I, I feel that fear is the kind of the opposite of love. But I also sort of repackage that and saying that I think that love is the only real force that we have in this world. Fear is, is, is kind of an absence of that force or, or a dissipation of that force uh, at varying levels, obviously. I don't see fear as an actual force. I, it feels like it at times, but I feel like it's kind of our distance between us and this kind of ineffable force that we, ineffable force we call love, or or even God for that matter. Uh, I, anyway, so in in terms of fear uh, and and what that means to me, and what and so much that I've studied about it, I'm very interested in your book about fear and kind of the journey that you went into on that on that, and and also just kind of the impetus for for creating it. It's it's a big, obviously a big issue to tackle. Uh, and from what I've read of, of what you've written, I, I think it, it sounds like you've handled it uh, in a beautiful way. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I am. Um, it, it is a big one to tackle. And and this was the one that I really decided I, I wasn't going to come necessarily at it with. I was going to try to drop my baggage about fear at the door and 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 take on this. What do we know? scientifically speaking. Um, you know, I, I wanted to try that challenge on, um, and ultimately I think I, I arrived back where my intuitive, um, position was, but in a, in a new way where I just had different language to talk about it. Um, because I too sort of had, had that perspective that, you know, the ground of, of being or sort of the ground of, of creation is, is something good. Um, and, Mm -hmm. and, and that you could, you could really get to maybe best with the word love because love is that feeling of, of expansion and unity that, um, that really has to be the ground because the ground is unity. Um, and so what is this thing fear of this contraction and it feels like, you know, dark energy or, um, it always, it feels so limiting and results in often, you know, fear of the other, which is the sort of, uh, first movement toward violence and, uh, and war. Yeah. And, but how, so how is that part of, you know, um, this bigger picture and, um, it's a big philosophical question that I think, um, you know, I still wrestle with intellectually a little bit, but I mean, scientifically speaking, um, the interesting thing is that fear is, is, it really is just energy. It's just, um, a different way I mean, you can take it on biologically. Like, you know, it's just your brain gets a message, um, that there is danger. It sends energy to your body to fight or flee, 
to or freeze. And so right there, you look at, well, there's a biological thing happening in your body where you feel like freezing or you feel like fighting or you feel like running. And we interpret that with this word fear, you know, which, you know, I assume animals don't do. They just feel the sensation and they don't have the language, at least to our knowledge, around, you know, labeling it with this negative. And it's interesting if you just remove the label, like just experiment with it from time to time where, okay, you're feeling anxiety and you say, well, what if this was just, what if, what if I experienced this just as sensation? You start to go into your meditative mode, you breathe, say, okay, you know, what is this truly? It's a boost of energy that's asking me, do I want to do something with this energy? And there are times where maybe you're in a dangerous situation where you're like, yeah, I do want to run. <laughs> I'm going to use this energy to get <laughs> yeah. out of here. Um, and then all of a sudden, though, it can be converted to, well, not fear, but energy, right? It's just like, well, this is a useful tool right now. Um, there's another situation where, whatever, say you're a filmmaker, you need to make, you need, you're looking for funding, you're at a cocktail party across the room as, you know, like Joe Schmo billionaire, you want to talk to him, you're freezing up, you know is okay, feel the sensation, it's energy, it's making you want to freeze. Do you want to freeze? No, you want to go, you want to go talk about your film. You want to be relaxed. And, and so that transmute that energy into something positive. Yeah. So then you're like, okay, well, how can I, you know, get back in the green here? And that's where I think, um, we need tools in order to convert the energy there. And so some of it might be reframing this as like, you know, I'm not, and just normalizing it and say, Hey, I'm feeling fear. That's a normal feeling. That's a, of course it's because I care about this because the other direction is I'm feeling afraid. I'm going to mess up. you know, I'm a failure, whatever it triggers mm-hmm. in you that is going to help not allow you to go and do that thing that, that you want to do that is, you know, getting you back to what you love making the film. So, um, so ultimately I think the interesting thing about coming at it scientifically was again and again, I sort of took these different angles on what is fear really. And, and is it the actual sensation that is bad or is it the way that we interpret the sensation through again, like you fear the other, somebody different. Well, there's a way of saying, well, I fear that person and so I'm going to move away from him or her, label them as, as maybe bad because I don't understand them or I'm jealous. And then there's the way of interpreting that sensation as like, hey, I'm, I'm, in, I'm intrigued here. I, I feel this sort of, I don't understand this. Maybe I could use that energy to understand more about you know, this culture that seems so different than my own. And so, you know, I think so much about um, fear as negative could be changed if we understood what fear really is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think you can take that from a spiritual perspective of, yeah, fear is the opposite of love. But how does love fit into fear? I mean, when you have kids, and I know you have little ones like me, mm-hmm. you, you have your, when your first baby comes out, 
you have all these dreams about like, oh no, I dropped the baby or I misplaced the baby. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you wake up in a sweat and it's like, yeah, you don't want that fear. It's uncomfortable. But what is it ultimately is your love for your child is mm-hmm. so great that your biology is preparing you to, to take care of this being that's so beautiful. And so again, if you can kind of shift it as like, well, what fear is ultimately about survival is about taking care of each other so we can survive. And so how can we always shift it toward, you know, that kind of Bodhisattva view of like, of, of helping all of us survive together. And so, um, the book, you know, the fear project, it takes a lot of different angles on, on fear through, um, through science and through story. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I arrived back where you are, Jared, I think where, you know, it is a version of love, um, and is ultimately included in love, but it can become this fractured, negative, even evil thing when it's misunderstood. And, um, and unfortunately, you know, that's part of our world, but I think it's a part that we could improve by with greater understanding. Absolutely. I think it's, I kind of look at fear as a, as a messenger. It's here saying, here's a message, (laughs) you know, and it's not always obvious or easy to decipher or whatever. And I I think typically when I'm in a situation that, I don't know, evokes some fearful emotion, my inclination is to say, what am I missing? What should I be listening to? What is here that I'm not paying attention to? And so on and so on. Obviously, you know, it doesn't give us the very, like, oh, I feel feel fearful. What is that? And then you go, oh, here's the answer. (laughs) Again, a lot of times it's just sending you on another journey to to go down. And maybe it's emotional. Maybe it's, uh, you know, life path or something like that. Uh, I think fear is, you know, to be used to help direct us, uh, you know, direct our path, if you will. Uh, But but not something that's to be used to... um, you know, to paralyze us, which is, which it often does. So yeah, I'm always interested in that discussion about fear. And obviously, you know, we, we can look and see that fear is, is what divides us. And, and I'm very much about figuring out peace and unity and harmony in this world. Uh, so that's a, it's a constant issue that keeps coming up. And I know that, you know, even in, in my spiritual practices, so much of that, so much of it has to do with how we deal with fear, how we view fear and, and the perspective of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, you can, I mean, one of the things that came up in writing the book a lot and talking to all these neuroscientists was that, okay, this is all very interesting to understand it from a scientific perspective, but ultimately what we need as humans is the experience of, of ways of mm-hmm. transforming fear. And, and that can really, I think, only happen in action. Um, you know, it, it, you can use different frames in meditation. You know, it happens by you feel the fear come up and you say, I'm not going to run. I'm going to stay here with it and I'm going to breathe with it and see what it is. You know, what is the sensation and not judge it, you know, and kind of see it as a wave moving through, not necessarily identify with it as like, Oh, I'm afraid of person. Therefore I am, you know, a jealous person or I really, you know, and it's like not buying into fear story, you know, I think it can also happen in sports, like where you, you, uh, you know, 
you confront a fear on a physical level, but ultimately it's like, we need that visceral experience of transforming fear. Um, otherwise it's just an intellectual exercise and the intellectual exercise is an interesting one, but it's like, I think those, those spiritual practices coming back to our, our talk about tools, it's like, that's, um, that's, I think where the richness is. And, um, because fear is so, it's such a powerful, um, not necessarily force, but it's a powerful feeling and it can be one that, that dupes us. Um, but yeah, ultimately I agree. It's, it is the, a pointer and it's the feeling of fear. It's discomfort that I think can, um, as practitioners bring us back to like, Hey, I need to go back and, 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 you know, do my, my daily meditation practice. Because if you didn't have that discomfort, you know, you might just, you might not look into, um, the deeper level of what's going on. So I do think it's always a pointer just as all, you know, obstacles are. I agree. And that, uh, <laughs> I love that you just said that there at the end in that you're saying that, you know, without the discomfort, sometimes you don't find what you're looking for. And I know that in your, in your newest book, uh, all our waves are water, which I love that title, by the way. Um, you say in one part, you say tropical, um, uh, tropical beach in Mexico with a beautiful woman, uh, nothing much to do except surf, be creative, meditate and eat tacos. Won't even bring you the lasting peace that you're looking for. <laughs> that, I can relate to some of that and having lived, you know, in beautiful Mombasa on the coast there on the beach and, and having, uh, you know, my, my wife and, and children and, and all of these wonderful, amazing things. But at the same time, still, I went through a, a period of time there even of, of some significant transformation, uh, emotionally and, and spiritually, however you want to look at that. Um, realizing some of the same stuff. It's like, wow, I've got all this stuff I've been looking for and I, but I've still got this feeling that not everything's there. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and on the, the, the journey of that realization that I imagine had a lot to do with creating that book. Yeah. But, um, I think it's, you know, if you ever wonder, you know, why billionaires want more, it's like, try having what you want. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it's, it's like, wherever you go, there you are with, you know, your thoughts and, and your insecurities and, you know, surprise, you know, uh, external circumstances, be they, you know, wealth or great, uh, riches don't sweep them all away. You know, they can improve them for a time. I don't want to say that, uh, you know, if you look at, you know, happiness, uh, across the board around the world. I mean, certainly rich countries, uh, I think often have a, a leg up, you know, where you're not dealing with just constant sickness or something in your family. I mean, that's never yeah. a good thing. It's, but at, at the end of the day, they're not going to get you past your existential angst. And I think it's a really, uh, a great lesson and a great, you know, blessing to be able to to be in a situation. I always tell this, I like to tell the story, um, of when I, uh, that I don't write about in the book, but, um, there was a trip I took to Bali. Whenever I go to Bali, I stay in these really like dirt cheap shacks on this 
little break that I love to surf. It's like a dollar a night, you know, you sleep on like a dirt floor, but you know, it's a bunch of, it's really casual. You drink mango juice, you know, it's, you have the view of the ocean. Wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it's like you have everything you need, but you don't have anything, you know, you don't eat. Um, and, but you have all the basics. And then, so the last time I was there, I was, um, was shortly after my first book came out and I'd been there for a month just living, you know, the, the easygoing, uh, life without a lot of, um, you know, internet and and stuff. And then I had, I got invited to the writers festival in Ubud, um, and the Bali government sponsors this. And so they put their writers up in just like the most incredible four star resort. And, um, and I went there and, uh, you know, with a girl I was dating at the time and we had an infinity pool and it was like, you know, where Oprah got married or something. (laughs) We, uh, and I mean, it's just incredible. We're being served these like four course breakfasts, part of the room. And, and, um, and we stayed there for a week during this writer's festival and it was great. I mean, it was really nice, but I, I was every time as the week went on, it was like all of these lavish reinforcements when you weren't having a great time (laughs) were like a reminder that you, that something was wrong with you. You know, (laughs) it was like, it was like, well, if you can't enjoy this, like you're really screwed, buddy. Like you, if you were just having like a, a, you know, a a run of the mill day or something, it was just like, and I, 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 I kept thinking like, there's a, there's something to the idea that uh, just keeping your expectations low, having the simple things, it's like then you have that, you know, just an English muffin with butter by the window and you're like, wow, this is amazing, you know. And if you have the the fancy breakfast, by the fifth day, you're like, I don't want this breakfast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, <laughs> I feel terrible after eating. <laughs> there's, no way, there's no way I can upgrade from this either. Yeah. It's like where do I go from here? You know, I, I, and the answer for me was I'm going back to my little shack, but, um, yeah, have a papaya, (laughs) (laughs) enjoy it. (laughs) And, um, it's not that all of that stuff can't be enjoyed because we did enjoy it, but it was, it's always interesting to me to see how pleasure works, like the pleasure principle, which is really, it's about, you know, getting that extra dose of dopamine. And at some point though, there's nowhere you can go (laughs) if you have it all. And so you really have to go inside. And I think it's where the Buddha being a prince had that, um, insight. He was like, I've got it all, man. And I'm suffering and I see all these other people suffering and I can't help them, um, with my riches. So where do I go? I go inside. Um, and I, you know, there's gotta be a way of finding a greater peace in the mind. And, and that was his motivator. And so I think, you know, great wealth and fame can be the motivator for a lot of people. And also poverty and suffering can be a motivator. Um, but ultimately you end up in the same place where you're like, I've got to deal with myself inside. And, um, I can't even remember what the original question what you asked was once I got started on that. <laughs> no worries, you you answered it well. Just asking about some of your journey and the all our all our waves of water. And, and in regards to that, like <laughs> what what I keep thinking to myself is like in that kind of a situation that you just described. You know, 
if you if if this doesn't totally bliss you out <laughs> experiencing this, then perhaps you should look inward. <laughs> and it sounds yeah. like that's what you did, and you went through that journey. Yeah, I mean, over the years, I, I I feel like I just have to learn this lesson over and over again, and that's really what the new book is about. All our waves are water. It's, um, you know, I started off in India. I've been was planning a trip with, um, my first love, who was Indian American, and we were had been planning this trip for years to India where we were going to live there for a year. And a month before the trip, we, we break out. <laughs> you know, oh, wow. He left me for a guy who, uh, was a little older. He happened to be Indian, which her parents approved of. It was like hitting all my insecurity <laughs> factors. And, uh, and I decided I was going to go to India anyway, but I was just a miserable wreck. I was just, uh, you know, a total wreck. And, but it was ultimately being a wreck that pushed me to go up to, um, you know, look deeper. And I, you know, I meet this, uh, Tibetan monk friend who is also heartbroken as well from, uh, losing his family in the Chinese occupation. And, and I made be made an incredible new friend who really is sort of one of the central characters of the book. But, you know, that's the launching point for the book is really like the thing that I thought, I mean, when you go through a breakup, it's like a death in your family and you think there's nothing worse. Like just kill me. (laughs) If, if, uh, you know, when you lose your first love, you really relate to like the Romeo and Juliet story. I thought nothing can heal me, you know, except getting, uh, Sati back. But ultimately it's like that unbearable pain bearing it, you know, can lead you to something, uh, else and and i wanted to explore that idea in the book that like really that we were talking about with fear that like what are these emotions that seem just unbearable and and this and some kinds of suffering that seem unbearable what are they really at their root and um and how do people who live in societies who that are far more um troubled than our own still find joy you know in their uh day in day out lives. Um, you know, that's really like the the theme of the book. And I kind of want to just explore that in different ways. I've been pretty blessed in my life, but I, um, you know, still have run into obstacles and kind of, I feel like each one of those obstacles has been my, my teacher. And, uh, you know, I wanted to kind of get that down for the record. Um, so I remember (laughs) when I'm running into the next obstacle. (laughs) I hear you on that. I was reading through some of your blog posts and, and some of the, there's this thread there and maybe not even one that you were necessarily specifically trying to articulate, but one that I picked up on and that you are, there is this sense about you and, and, and seeing through the lens and the perspective that you see through because of your travels and your experiences and, and the struggles and things that have led you to some of more of the enlightenment that you experience now and, and so on understanding that that's a continual journey you I think you're seeing some of the same similar things that I'm seeing in that there is there are these elements of life I guess where well let me read one little excerpt from your uh, your your post on a pledge for South Sudan uh, which caught my eye because it's an area that I've been very focused on and I've had the privilege of teaching some other activists in, in that area and so on um 
you said, let's see, it feels strange to be putting so much energy into selling a book about world travel, surfing, spiritual fulfillment, and joy when millions of kids can't even approach these ideas because they are too weak to play. Um, mm. I think we can kind of fill in some of the understanding around the, the situation there. But that's one of those things like I... You know, for, for, as an activist, I spent so much of my time on the front lines uh, in DRC, in Rwanda, in Kenya, in, wherever, uh, addressing frontline issues. Uh, and, and, and human trafficking was a big one that I spent many, many years uh, working in the anti-human trafficking programs uh, all the way. Yeah. So with that kind of being the worst of the worst represented there uh, and viewing humans as a commodity, that represents to me a, a, a problem, a perspective problem. And, and, the, and the result of that perspective problem, the symptom is the trafficking. But the trafficking is, is not the problem. It's the perspective that says a human can be viewed as a commodity. Uh, and, and so when I look at it that, from that view, I, I'm realizing that there is a perspective problem there. Uh, so I've changed a lot of my tactics over the years to focusing more on that perspective, hence mm-hmm. the creation of this podcast, <laughs> for instance, and realizing that if I really want to be a part of changing the world uh, in the way that I want to, and that is specific to me, um, I think that I'm best suited to address the consciousness side, the perspective side of things, uh, and, and the root causes that that I guess to me, the root cause is the perspectives that continually create these same scenarios that we have, that we fight. I don't want my kids to be fighting the same problems that I'm fighting now, you know, from a, from a social justice standpoint. So I want to work on the, 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 the perspective side of things. Uh, with your experience in addressing fear and addressing, um, you know, freedom, and you're hitting both sides of the perspective there, or, or, the, or the spectrum there, and and having the journey that you've had. What do you? I mean, when I t- I talk a lot about politics on this show, and I know this is a, kind of a nasty word. People don't like to talk about politics, but you know the actual word politicos that it derives from means you know it kind of translates to the way that we organize ourselves as a society. And you and I are living in the same country right now where there are lots of, there's lots of upheaval, suffice it to say. Uh, and there, there are a lot of things going on, even more so in California, actually, where you're at. But there, there's this social thing that's happening. Uh, and, and I think that a lot of it's a culmination of things that have been brewing for a long time. But we're starting to see some things, you know, kind of hit the ceiling. And I, I'm interested in your perspective on kind of where we're at now as a society uh, understanding, I think both you, you and I can look at society and say there's a lot of fear happening, and, and that's what's causing a lot of the issues that we have. What is your perspective on, you know, um, on kind of working our way back towards peace and harmony as a society uh, with, with some of the lessons that you've learned over your 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 journey, I guess? Yeah. Um, well, first, yeah, let me just say that um, I think uh, I think there's a real place for for both, uh, sides, the sort of working on the mental, um, paradigm and the perspective, spiritual paradigm. And then there's also a real need for the frontline kind of soldiers of peace, Mm -hmm. if you will, that you've, um, done. And, and, 
you know, we need both. And I think, uh, they ideally go hand in hand and, you know, that we can maybe be in rotation. <laughs> well, because- it's, it's hard to be very effective on the consciousness side and the side that I've chosen now without yeah. the fact that I spent almost 20 years on the other side. Uh, yeah. and, and thank God for the guys that are still on the other side addressing the actual moment that things are happening that needs so much attention. Um, yeah. And I, and I continue to support organizations and individuals that, that do that. And, uh, and, and we'll always, and I'm sure we'll always have a, a frontline presence. My wife and I also a human rights activist. Um, however, we're also, yeah, we're realizing where we're at right now and what we want to contribute to or feel that we're best suited to contribute to as well on the consciousness side. And then also, uh, you know, continuing to have conversations like this that can help on the frontline side as well. I think I agree with you. It's, it's completely, it's got to all be interwoven together. Yeah. And I think it is one and the same. I mean, no peace in, you know, peace inside, peace outside. And Mm -hmm. we all have our own, um, you know, we all have the seeds of, uh, peace in us and enlightenment. And we also have the capability to do, uh, evil. And, um, and I think it can be, you know, the difference of a hair of what turns you toward one. Um, you know, we all could be that in that circumstance of being the person training a child soldier or, um, it's, it's so much of, it is a matter of, of circumstance and, and the, pers- and, and the perspective that you've been given. And so I think first and foremost, um, you know, to see those as one and the same, that there is nobody who, if you're working on your own internal consciousness, um, toward peace, that that is, you know, never doubt that that is changing the world and that every relationship you have, um, is in- important. And, uh, and that also, I think, um, when you have the opportunity to, to be on the front lines, um, that that is, uh, you know, a side that we can't, I think as spiritual people, I, I Buddhists fall into this trap sometimes of, you know, well, it's all illusory. You know, there's this teaching of like, <laughs> well, everything's made from the mind alone. And so, you know, the suffering is sort of like, it's happening like a film or something. And it's like, well, there may be some degree on a greater consciousness level that that's happening. But meanwhile, those beings are suffering. And so we need to treat that as real. It is all illusory and all real, I think, at, at the same time. I think that uh, right now, at this time in history, um, we're dealing with the same pull of uh, – forces that we always have where, you know, we have, uh, extreme, um, suffering and fear and, uh, selfishness and extreme generosity and compassion, um, and desire to understand and awaken. And we see them, um, magnified right now under the lens of our technology, which is, you know, connecting us. And so we're, we're being hit, constantly every second from all sides with these almost like these polar opposites like exploding in our on our phones every few seconds (laughs) and um it's a really interesting experiment in consciousness uh, in that um we're not ready for it i mean in terms of 
uh, our biology is getting overwhelmed. And so, you know, I think, um, we, we can't let ourselves just sit on the internet all day and just take in tragedy (laughs) and that doesn't help anyone. Um, because it's not, there is a lot of atrocity going on just like there always has been through history. And I think our mission right now is to each be able to stay present with what's happening in front of us and to be global citizens without getting so wrapped up into the um, technological stream of atrocity that's coming through our phones to become desperate and become so cynical that we can't, we become paralyzed. And, And I do think that is happening because our biology hasn't adapted to the technology and the way in which news is being streamed into our bodies, literally, um, at a, a record pace, that um, it's hard for us to get through the fear and, um, and go towards the positive actions that we have the capability of, of moving towards. So I think... Um, so I think step one on the sort of consciousness... Uh, battle is being able to uh, find equilibrium in our lives and it's different for each person but which means taking time out to find peace inside so whether that's you know taking your walk every day in the forest or becoming a meditator or a yogi or a surfer or uh, whatever like doing what you need to do to find equilibrium inside and then coming to a select uh, problem that you think you can make a positive impact on and really like being incisive you know choosing that thing and saying I'm gonna I'm gonna make progress on this in a way that um, in an educated way Um, I think that uh, you know choosing our battles is really important um, right now because of the overwhelming nature of the way the information is coming at us um, from a balanced perspective, from an educated perspective, and from an optimistic perspective. So, um, you know, I'm still thinking through it myself, to be honest, Jared, because it's um, I'm in the same boat as everybody else trying to figure out how lightning fast everything is changing. But, you know, that's that's my elevator pitch. <laughs> No, I understand that. And we, we've talked about this a lot uh, on the show and then even just amongst friends and with my wife about the fact that we're living in hyperspeed right now. We're living, I don't think that there's any more, just to use an easy term here, the tyranny in the world necessarily in the, than the, what there ever has been before, except for the fact that there are two things going on. One is I think that the level of it is is intensified because we have the technology to do so. You know, we have nukes and whatnot now. Uh, and, and and all the other elements, and the other one is just the, you know the, the what you're touching on is the the supply of information, the inundation of information that we have in our heads all day long if we allow it, um, especially those of us that have TVs and radios and things like that, of which I haven't had for about 20 years. But I, I, I mean, I I do know what's going on and I stay in touch. But you're right, there has to be a balance. Uh, and I think that a lot of times people, activists that are trying to make a difference in the world, get stuck in that, uh, I don't know, that information channel where it's just like, oh, dear God, will it ever end? I mean, I, again, especially in the under the current regime we're under in America and, and I mean, like 
wow, is there any hope here at all? But I think what's happening is it's just an intensified message. It's in, the universe is, is very intensely saying, hey, there are a lot of things that are not getting attention, and this should help. <laughs> this level of contrast, I'm hoping, will help uh, bring people back into alignment, ultimately. And, and sometimes it, you know, it gets a little hairier before it gets better. And I think that's certainly endemic of our, of our world history as humans. Um, but I, I also, I can look at the world right now and say, wow, things are on fire, things are terrible, and here's all the stats that prove it. And at the same time, I can say, it really feels like we're on the precipice of something beautiful happening because things are this intense. And, and I feel like uh, as an activist um, or as a human, <laughs> even, I, I just, I feel like I have to step back and say, okay, at the same time that I see all these terrible things happening, I also see people waking up and I see people coming more alive and I see people being more present and, and so on. Um, you know, and that's that's the <laughs> um, that's the yin and yang of it. Uh, you know, we have the good and the bad kind of rising at, at the same level of intensity all the time, uh, but it's all rising and it's all still there. That and, and I, I feel like that's the yin and yang effect of everything. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, um, I mean, there's so much. You know, news agencies are in the bad news business, and um, they, to some extent, maybe they have to be for democracy to function. To some extent, I think it's a ratings thing. But there's a lot of for every bad, you know, quote, you know, apocalyptic thing you could go out and find today. You could go out and find a reason to hope, and um, mm. those two are always there. I mean, that's that's the universe. You know, darkness and light are present, and I think. Uh, you know, on some ultimate level, it's all one and everything is, is all good. And I, I think there is a place in us that understands that actually, that eternally that is okay. Like things yeah. are rolling as they should. Everything belongs, even when to, it seems it shouldn't. <laughs> right. And then to also be able to say, well, on a relative level, things are not okay, you know. That the fact that there are children who are too weak to play in South Sudan because they're eating grass and escaping, uh, you know, just the most horrid, uh, uh, um, you know, genocide is not is not right. And so to be able to hold those at once, I mean, really is, I think, um, the modern human's task and um, and to use them uh yeah, to awaken greater compassion and also awaken greater wisdom. Uh, somehow those need to happen simultaneously. And it's it, it feels overwhelming, but it also is, I think it is a collective awakening, you know, that we've been on since, you know, the birth of, of consciousness and that we'll continue to be on. Um, but, you know, in the midst of, of, of suffering, you know, one thing that I come back to is like people often activists and such will say, you know, so like I can't find any joy in the world because there, you know, there is so much. How can you find joy when there is that child who, you know, is eating grass in South Sudan? And it's like it is hard and it is good to feel that hurt and feel that compassion, I think, and try to do something. And then at the same time, we have to remember that, you know, there's seven billion of us every single one of us is going to die. <laughs> you know, I just lost my father 
he suffered a lot as he died and Mm -hmm. every one of us is going to suffer and die. It may be tomorrow. It may be in 80 years. Suffering exists. Death exists. We can't save all of our, each other from that suffering, but we can, you know, use the fact that we suffer and the fact that we die, the fact that there is sickness as ways of looking deeper into what's going on, whether you want to call that the soul or call that, um, the experience of God or experience of enlightenment, I think that still is our most powerful tool to have a real spiritual practice. I mean, that is, that goes beyond the ups and downs of the everyday and the relative. The more you can embrace that, the more you can be in this world of joy and sorrow and be a beacon for those who have no connection to it, who are only, you know, struggling day to day in the reactionary aspects of the relative world, it's like, well, those people who are connected to a sort of more ultimate perspective can be here, I think, as as um, as beacons, you know, just just like so many, you know, sages and prophets have gone before who I know you've studied. And so that's my perspective is kind of, you know, it's always going to be like that. I don't think there's this like utopian uh, yeah realm that we can somehow, you know, I think we can make the world a more peaceful place, but there, the fact that there is life and death, <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't know if that's, we're going stuck away. with that one. I think, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we all have our, our different perspectives, obviously we all have our different practices and so on. How would you describe your, your ethos, your, your personal perspective on life and and I, I can tell that you're a person that's driven by that. And I'm, I'd be interested to hear how you'd kind of wrap that up. It's a tough one to, to wrap up. Some, it's, it's like the big one, you know. Um, <laughs> somebody asked me the, uh, my book reading the other night. Like She was like, what's the purpose of Saltwater Buddha? And, and also, by the way, what's the purpose of being here? <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> I was like, wow, coming out. Um, you know, I always like... Um, this Alan Watts uh, mm. quote that I re- read um, said, you know, the meaning of life is being alive. And I think that's kind of my uh, I, uh, umbrella ethos too, is just, you know, we are uh, not here to necessarily seek an answer. That's like a, a conclusion or a paradigm that is like going to be the conclusive away but we are here to experience being and when you stop seeking for uh you know that answer that final answer and can kind of drop into living for living set you know to be alive mm-hmm. there's some there's just like a really interesting i think space that 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 can open and and so that's the way I, you know i think i try to try to live. Um, I definitely have a seeker's mentality, you know, I think it sounds like we share that where we're always, you know, wanting to, um, philosophize and, and grab and, and try on different answers and theories. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, here we are, <laughs> you know, like just taking in an experience of being, and when I drop all of that and can really be in that place of, of just, you know, enjoy, whether it's playing with my kids or um, 
I think that's why I've, I've written about surfing because it's that place where the dynamicness of the ocean, it forces me out of those, that seeking and that questioning and just, you know, there I am, the, the feeling of cold water, the feeling of, you know, being present on a, on a, on a wave, um, the feeling of paddling and, uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. Fair enough. What's a, uh, a, a person or a, you know, person, guru book experience or whatever that you feel was kind of an inciting moment in your story, something that shifted things, your perspective. Mm. Well, uh, there's been a lot with the book. I just, all our waves are water coming. I've been thinking a lot about my old friend, Sonam, Sonam Wangdu, who, um, was a Tibetan monk who became just a, a very dear friend of mine when I was living up in, uh, in McLeod Ganj in the Himalayas. And, and I think, uh, he kind of got me started on this, all our waves are water thing. I really owe it to him because he was really mourning, as I mentioned earlier, his family. He lost his family. He lost track of them. He didn't know if they were alive anymore because he had trekked over the Himalayas uh, to ordain with the Dalai Lama when he was 11 years old. And he lost touch with them. And he was, as he got older, really realizing that he may never see them again, even though he was a monk and happy being a monk. He wanted to try to find them. And so he has this... Uh, I even watched him sort of physically grieving about this, where he would cry talking about them. And, and the first time he did that, I put my hand on his shoulder and I just said, so now I'm so sorry that you're, you can't find him. And I, you know, I want to do what I can to help or whatever. And he laughed at me while he was crying. And he said, he said, Jama, you funny, this very sad, no problem. And, um, <laughs> And that became like a mantra for me of like, this very sad, no problem. Um, I was like, yeah, it isn't a problem to feel sad if you embrace that. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, but that was like a no brainer for him. You know, it was just like what he'd grown up with. Yeah. And, uh, and I love that. And, um, and so he, you know, he's one of many people who have, who have uh, been a great teacher and inspiration that's great. That's a beautiful story. I mean, I, I, I'm a very much a believer in that as well. And in, in that philosophy of we have emotions, they're there for a reason. And I think we, we are to allow them in to lean into them. And then, you know, if it's a negative emotion, be able to, again, kind of transmute that energy into something positive, like we talked about before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, they're there to feel and I mean, they're, uh, yeah, it's a pitfall on the on the meditative path that you're supposed to, you know, sort of ignore them. Um, yeah, you know, absolutely wrong. And I, I mean, and I think you know that's that's uh, often when we feel most alive is just when we are able to really feel what we're feeling and actually, um, you know, contact it in a real way. Yeah, we wrestle with it, we toil with it, and and but give it some space to breathe and let it be and, and, and let yourself feel it. Otherwise stifling it obviously kind of in my mind, kind of crystallizes it and turns it into something that's going to work against you in the, in the long run anyway. 
Yeah, I mean, going back to what we were talking about of, you know, how are people able to do these incredible, you know, look at human beings as a commodity. I mean, I think more than almost fear, um, there's almost like a fear of feeling and a numbness that has come over um, some, you know, communities, I think, that have, have experienced such hardship that it's like, you run from your emotions enough and you can't feel anything. And, um, and then all of a sudden you don't care. And that's like, to me, the most dangerous, uh, emotion, if you will, if, if you can call it that is that sort of, um, you know, distant, such distance from emotion yeah. that you can't feel anymore. Deliberate and, uh, cutting off. Yeah. 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 And we've all been there, you know, but mm-hmm. it's, uh, well, and, and, and certainly even in the areas that some of the stuff that we just discussed in, in, in South Sudan and, and my, you know, living in Rwanda and Kenya and, and specifically in Rwanda, you know, after the genocide and so on, there's so much numbness and cutting off from human emotion. It's taught there. It's promoted there. It's, you know, illegal to talk about genocide for uh, locals and or especially to talk about the tribes and things like that. So it's, it's like the, all these problems led to this horrific instance. And then after that, the sort of the MO is to say, don't ever bring any of that stuff up. Don't ever deal with it. Don't ever talk about it. And then just move on. But what's happening is that it continues to brew underneath everything underneath the surface. And, you know, obviously creates a lot of volatility and, and so on. And we can look at that, you know, there's a, a societal dynamic that's happening there, but it happens very similarly on an individual level. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, I can only imagine that. Um, I mean, I've seen that in places that I've, I've been that have experienced really intense conflict too. And um, yeah, it's not easy. Cause you look at what the, tr- what it takes to experience, uh, the emotion of a conflict in, you know, when everything's going relatively well, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, whether it's like, you know, your parents divorce or, you know, something just, and then you, you think about the, the monumental task of feeling, you know, something in the midst of, 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 uh, of war, it's, um, you know, it's not easy, but it is, you're right. It's like, you have to try, otherwise it gets buried and, um, and it will come out one way or another. Hey, I have, I have a, an interesting question for you on, um, about your book. Uh, I hope it's interesting anyway. The, <laughs> the, the new book, Holler Waves or Water. Uh, tell me the, the photo, the, first of all, the cover is beautiful and uh, I'm a brand guy, you know, so I'm into that. <laughs> um, <laughs> And it, but you know, and, and everything tells a story. And I assume that you intended for your book cover to tell a story, uh, and specifically the image on on the cover. Uh, I felt like wasn't just the obvious image that could have gone there. What's the story behind that? Yeah, it's a great question, and um, I wish I had the photographer's name. He's a famous photo, and um, for some reason I'm spacing the photographer's name. But um, but anyway, uh, from the from the seventies, it's not me. Um, and I felt a little conflicted about that photo going on the cover. Um, but it was something actually that Karen Rinaldi, the publisher, um, uh, one of her favorite photos and, um, you know, since people aren't seeing it, it's an image of a, of a 
longboarder um, who kind of has his head bowed and it almost looks like he could be in prayer or reverence or maybe like sulking. You're not. Yeah. He's kind of slumped over going (laughs) kind of slumped over. And I have it in my head as like, this is like the ultimate image of reverence for, um, it's almost like, you know, here you are in the, this ultimate spot on the wave kind of just in front of the curl, he's on the nose and um where you want to be and instead of this kind of celebratory like yeah baby (laughs) yeah like claiming it he's like got his head bowed and um i think um there was some there's something about the image um the book is really i mean i think about a rep ultimately about reverence um and awe for the experience of, um, of being alive. And, and, you know, I look at that through science, I look at it through a spiritual framework, but it's like ultimately the, the feeling when you really, um, look at the ocean, um, look at consciousness is one of, of reverence. It's like, and I think, um, you go back to like, you know, I think terms that are under, misunderstood from the Bible, like God fearing, you know, yeah. when you look at the word for fearing, it's a, 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 in the uh, Aramaic or in the Greek, it's uh, often translate, could also be translated as awe, like to be in awe of, of the divine. And, um, and that picture just yeah. kind of captured that since I, you know, I'm using the ocean as a, as a lens for some of these bigger questions and, and that image kind of says it, I think without having to say it. And, um, again, I felt a little weird cause it's not me and I didn't want to be implying that like this really, uh, you know, amazing surf surfer is me. Um, <laughs> so I write, I actually wrote a little caveat in the, in the inside of the book saying, you know, thank you to the photographer and who the surfer is. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I really love the photo. Oh, it's a beautiful photo. I, I think it's very provocative. It's and it's beautiful. I agree. Uh, it, it got me. <laughs> cool. Then it worked. Well, and I, yeah, and I and I like I love the story behind it as well. Well, what's I mean, we, we've covered a lot of ground here, and I feel like I could I could continue. Uh, maybe we'll do another podcast, but uh, I feel like uh, we've we've covered some good ground, and and I'd like to hear kind of your parting words on, and if you have one little piece of advice from all this that you want to leave us with, what would that be right now where I'm at in my day? Um, actually, you know, I was just writing about this today that, uh, the older I get, the more I realize, uh, you know, any sort of effort you put in to external validation being cool, (laughs) you know, (laughs) fitting into somebody else's idea of cool. It's like every drop you put in that bucket, it's going to be eventually be one of, I think, dissatisfaction. Um, and every drop that you put in the bucket of just accepting yourself, like just accepting, you know, really like loving yourself, um, you know, self in the big sense of, uh, is seems like a drop in like the real contentment bucket, 
<laughs> and, and so anyway, uh, just because I was just reflecting on that today, I'll, but it's, you know, through, I guess I'm, I'm leaving it there because throughout all three of my books, I feel like as a young person growing up in, in this society that worships external validation and external validation symbols like and awards and you know it's like that is our world like you go anywhere in in uh this time and it's like you're just flooded with it's like success are you successful are you beautiful are you are yeah. you love are you popular how many likes do you have on your facebook i mean it's like that is 99% of our day and i think are you worthy of our praise yeah <laughs> it, right are you worthy of, you know, are you loved by everyone? And it's like, that leads to constant dissatisfaction. That is, like, <laughs> that, and we all fall victim to it. And all we have to do is turn it around and be like, you know what, I'm all right. <laughs> I'm, I'm fine. You know, I can validate myself. And any drop you put in that bucket, I think, is just, it's, it's, it's freeing yourself from this ranking system and um so you know that's my advice i'm gonna part on excellent well i yeah i agree with you very much on that i think we're all drawn towards you know safety and comfort and lately i've been adding and status (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) on that little formula uh in this day and age i think that that's something that we, we have to add into that as well well, Jamal, thanks so much uh, for for being here, man, for holding this space for uh, love and freedom and the discussions around that with us today. I really appreciate you being here. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Jared. Thanks so much for holding a space for love and freedom with us today. If you appreciate this discussion, I hope you'll share it widely and rate and review us on iTunes. That's the best way to help us amplify our message. NEP Radio theme music is provided by Human Suits from their original soundtrack for the documentary Planetary. Check them out and download their music at humansuits.bandcamp.com. Until next time, I wish you peace on your journey. May you always align with love and let your life speak. Tahuye Oyasin.